Hey, Parker. Hey, Carrie. It's good to hear your voice. You too. And I'm so excited about our guest today, Greg Ellison. Parker, tell me a story. You know, how did you first meet Greg? Well, it feels like I've known Greg forever, but it was sometime five to ten years ago uh, on the back porch of our home here in Madison, Wisconsin. For a whole day, Greg and I sat on that back porch sharing mutual concerns, stories, including family stories, in which we found some pretty remarkable overlaps. So many overlaps, really, that he ended up calling me Cousin Parker, and I now call him Cousin Greg. So it's it's wonderful to have him with us today. And so it's welcome to the Growing Edge and welcome Cousin Greg. To the words and how they live between us and to us and how we live between the words. Hey Parker, before we start today, I would like to mention that we usually announce our question of the month at the top of the show, but today we'll be announcing the question of the month at the end of the program. So let's begin. Well, Carrie, a lot of people know Greg Ellison because his books and projects have reached far and wide over the last five or ten years. But for those who aren't familiar with Greg's background, I want to say just a few words about his very long and wide list of accomplishments. Let me start by mentioning three very important books that I hope our listeners will take a look at and get their hands on. The first one is called Cut Dead But Still Alive. Caring for African-American Young Men in Today's Culture. That's a 2013 book. More recently, in 2017, uh, Greg wrote Fearless Dialogues, A New Movement for Justice. Uh, That, as we'll be learning during this podcast, is much more than than a book. It's a national, international project. And I'm very happy to have a small role in Greg's forthcoming book, Uh, in the fall of uh, 2019, called Anchored in the Current, the Timeless Wisdom of Howard Thurman in a Changing World. And of course, Carrie, you and I took a line from Howard Thurman to title our whole project here, The Growing Edge, that famous quote in which this great man says, in times of death and destruction, look well to the growing edge. Lots and lots of stuff behind those books, including Greg's uh, Bachelor of Arts from Emory University, his Master of Divinity degree from Princeton Theological Seminary, and his PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary. But what impresses me most about Greg and moves me and touches me is the way he engages with the world, uh, not in the abstract, but one person at a time, one community at a time, in the transformative work that that he's doing. So Greg, it is lovely, so lovely to have you with us today. Hey, it's good to be here. I have been so touched by Fearless Dialogues. Uh, but let's let's go to the to the first book perhaps. Um, it's a it's an amazing title, Cut Dead but Still Alive, and perhaps you could talk a little bit about that book and you know where that came from and and how that how that may have led to what happened next. Thank you again, Carrie and Parker, for having me. Um, and uh, I, I'm grateful to participate in this uh, conversation. I'm praying that it will be a conversation and not an interview. Uh, 
because I believe in dialogues, not monologues. So, uh, but to your question, Carrie, um, Cut Dead But Still Alive emerged from some research that I was doing um, while I was in my doctoral program at Princeton Seminary. But in uh, retrospect, it was research that I began when I was born as an African-American man uh, or an African-American boy uh, in this country. And uh, the primary uh, impetus of the book is looking at uh, African-American young men who feel um, muted and invisible. And um, I had the opportunity while I was uh, working on my, my doctoral um, uh, degree of uh, working with young men who were coming out of prison in Newark, New Jersey. And these were really, really bright young men. Um, and all the while, I was writing uh, my dissertation. And uh, I came to a crossroads of sorts because on campus at Princeton, there were uh, a number of students who heard about this young black man who was doing a PhD in, in counseling, in pastoral counseling. And so around lunchtime, people would come by and say, hey, you got any lunch plans? And it turned out that I don't know if they were passing flyers out on campus, but, you know, students figured out if you get this guy a hamburger, you know, you'll get a free counseling session. So uh, students were showing up and um, I talked to many African-American young men um, and women at the institution and they felt as if they were only being seen monolithically in a very narrow way. Um, likewise, working in Newark, uh, you know, I would make a 41 mile trek uh, to, um, to Newark, New Jersey from Princeton in a very, very much, um, very different kind of environment. Um, and instead of the lush green campus, it was the brick city, you know, a lot of concrete and, uh, hardened faces. And in working in that program, I saw young men who equally felt invisible. And what I recognized was that when you don't feel seen or heard, uh, it began to impact how these young men related to the people around them, uh, how they conceived of their future, and how they um, thought about themselves. And so the uh, the great irony and uh, providential timing was uh, that this first book came out just about eight weeks before the Zimmerman verdict, when our country was um, deeply embroiled in uh, conversations that were happening um, really beneath the surface. Uh, this was pre-Ferguson, pre-Black Lives Matter, but um, around police brutality. And so as a young black professor at Emory University um, who had written a book on young black men, I immediately became uh, what some folks saw as an expert, which is kind of laughable to me. Um, and so I was invited to do all of these conversations um, on, you know, radio, newspaper, and um, both national and local. And uh, it was, it was disturbing uh, how these conversations unfolded. And so that transitioned me to my next project. And that would be, of course, Fearless Dialogues. Before we go there, Greg, 
Um, the phrase cut dead but still alive comes from who again? So it's a, uh, it's a quote that was uh, written by William James, uh, right. the famous uh, pragmatist and psychologist from Harvard um, University. And he says, no more fiendish punishment could be devised than if one were turned loose in the world and remain absolutely unnoticed by all the members thereof. If nobody turned around when you entered Parker, mm -hmm. if nobody answered when you spoke, if nobody minded what you did, um, but if every person you met cut you dead mm -hmm. and acted as if you were a non-existent thing, not a person, before long a kind of rage and impotent despair would well up in you from which the cruelest bodily torture would be a relief. Mm -hmm. And so um, what, what William James is talking about in this book, Principles of Psychology, is that as human beings, we have this innate need to belong, to be in relationship with others. And when that is compromised, something in us begins to die. And he uses this term cut dead, which is literally uh, and I joke around when we're working with young people because I call William James a thug uh, mm. because he uses slang terminology. You know, cut dead literally means to be snubbed completely or deliberately ignored. And so um, what I was recognizing and, you know, I kind of played on that phrase in the title of the book is that the young men uh, that I particularly focus on in that first book, though they were snubbed completely and deliberately ignored, they still had hope, they still had ambition, they still had drive and a, a vision of success for their life, but they, they felt thwarted by their inability to be seen or heard. So they were literally cut dead but still alive at the same time. Mm -hmm. and, and what was really intriguing to me, Parker, is I started getting these invitations to, um, to talk about my research in some very peculiar places. One was in Peru, and um, I was working with some pastors, and um, I walked outside and I saw this man who was literally replanting an entire field um, by putting down one blade of grass at a time. It was like literally reseeding an entire field. Just imagine mm -hmm. like three football fields mm -hmm. and, um, and no one had spoken to him. And I, I went up and talked to him um, and he said, you're the first person that's spoken to me. And he said, I know this is a, a, a pastor's retreat center, but you're the first per person that's spoken to me this week. And I started talking to him about how that felt. And he said, you know, I, I don't feel visible and I feel like the boss that I work for just sees me as a machine. And um, so that started sparking some conversations. And, you know, finally, um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'll be done with this story in a minute, but um, I was invited to rural Kansas to talk about young black men who feel unseen and unheard and ain't too many young black men in rural Kansas where I was invited. And so um, the, the intriguing thing was I went to this um, college and the auditorium was full of white senior citizens. And, um, and when 
I began to talk about the qualities of feeling cut dead, of feeling invisible, of having rage, but also ambition and drive and wanting to contribute. These white senior citizens in rural Kansas said, we know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so um, what this research began to teach me is that while I still believe uh, young black men and women are particularly susceptible to being made invisible and not heard, this is a global crisis. And that regardless of if you are in Newark or Princeton, rural Kansas or Peru, um, that we all have some strain in us uh, in which we can recall a moment when which other people did not recognize the fullness of our humanity. And so um, that book and that research and engaging with people from all over really shaped and reshaped how I view and move in the world. Yeah, that's really the key to it, isn't it? When, 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 when the fullness of our humanity is not recognized, I'm really glad you, you put it that way because that reaches out to so many people in so many different places. It reaches out to a lot of women. Yeah. Uh, it reaches out to a lot of folks in the LGBTQ community. It, it reaches out to a lot of people in the service industry, the, the women who clean our rooms in hotels. Um, or the, the people who take care of the restrooms in airports. Um, I'm so aware, because of your work, Greg, I look at the world with new lenses. Who, who is it within my field of view right now that is being cut dead but is still alive? And, and how might I help to heal or alleviate that, that feeling? Yeah. You know, I've been really touched by this idea uh, that it happens so immediately, I mean, so close to us, mm. that it's not a theory that's out there and untouchable. It's actually something that happens on a daily basis, person by person, that we choose whether or not we are going to see the, the folks in our three feet around us as having their full humanity. Uh, and I think that's a really powerful idea that we do have the power, we have tremendous power by just how we choose to walk around in the world, how we choose to interact every day um, and, and frame those interactions. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, Carrie, that you, you talk about the choices that we make. Um, and I know we're going to talk about fearless dialogues in a minute, but um, we often uh, reflect on that quote by William James. And... Um, in our fearless dialogue spaces. And the uh, and we invite people to share with us how it felt. Uh, we don't say, how did it feel when you read this or when you heard this, but just how does it feel? And we leave it open. And um, we've worked with nearly 60,000 people around the world now, but there are four instances of of reflecting on William James's quote that immediately come to mind. Um, and I'll just share one of them because the statement is, is central across all of them. When we ask this question, we give people time to speak in small groups and then we invite them to call back their responses and we, we put them on charting paper. And I recall we were in Fort Lauderdale and this young man stood up and he said, I feel suicidal. 
when I hear this quote, I feel suicidal, not it would make me feel suicidal, not, you know, I felt suicidal, but at this moment, I feel suicidal. And, you know, um, we have folks on our team that are trained. And so we triaged this young man. But what it said to me, um, and particularly the fact that it's occurred three other times, is that not seeing people can be a life or death enterprise and that we never know how close someone is to being on the edge and how much just recognizing a person through eye contact and, uh, you know, a very informal gesture, how are you doing today? How that could shape and transform someone's life because they could literally be on the edge of breaking. And so uh, for me, um, this work has become far more than an academic enterprise because now I recognize the weight of what it means to um, to recognize people and also to cut them dead. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, you know, Carrie and I first encountered um, Fearless Dialogues by actually attending a session where she and I and you were essentially on the same platform. I think on the second day, uh, with six or seven hundred people in the room, we sh- we shared a dialogue up on that platform, which was for us deeply engaging. Carrie, I'd I'd love to hear you say a few things about your your impressions of that session we shared, which probably then goes to a uh, to a question for for Greg about about fearless dialogues and about some of the powerful learnings that that he's been having there that we know at least a little bit about because we had our own powerful learnings that morning in Minneapolis. Yes, I, you know, there were different components and and it was beautifully organized. But one of the things that struck me right away was that every single person, and there was maybe 500 people in this room, every single person who walked into the space, someone from Fearless Dialogues, approached them looked them in the eye and said, welcome, you know, and there was a phrase, you know, a particular phrase, but, but, but essentially I see you, I am, I am grateful you're here. And that started the entire thing off with, with a certain spirit of every single person mattered. Every single person was acknowledged and invited into, um, maybe some risk taking. Are you ready to change? Um, Welcome. It is good to finally see you. Are you ready to change? mm -hmm. I've never been welcomed at a conference that way. (laughs) (laughs) It's more like, have you got your registration fee handy? We'd like to have it now. (laughs) Yeah. And then we went through a a process um, that you're talking about. We worked with quotes. We paired with uh, individuals. um, there was a, a point in it where we actually looked at one another with a certain kind of spirit, uh, a spirit of love, uh, in the eyes directly, with permission, of course, from the other person. Everyone kind of going deeper into this idea of being seen, truly seen, getting underneath the things that that keep us afraid and continue to divide us because we're afraid. Yeah. Well, what have you been learning about fear as a driver of human behavior, Greg, in fearless dialogues and about overcoming fear. It's such a huge problem in our society. Mm-hmm. And and is it is it not intimately linked to the problem of 
of us not seeing other people, partly because we're afraid of them. We're afraid of their strangeness. We're afraid of what we look upon as an alien quality. I'd love to hear you talk about some of those things. So I'll, I'll start by sharing a little bit about our organization, and then I'll, I'll jump in on that fear point, if that's okay. Sure. Um, and so um, Fearless Dialogues, again, it started right after the Zimmerman verdict. Um, I was on NPR, and uh, it was a week after the verdict. And I said, hey, if you want to have a conversation about this, some of you will go and march on the Capitol with your Skittles and your tea and your hoodies on. Some of you may want to have a conversation. So we, in, we invite you into dialogue. And uh, the challenge, as you uh, both know, is that I didn't tell my dean before I made that invitation on NPR. <laughs> and, uh, and 400 people showed up. And it was a very eclectic group of people. Um, there were students and faculty members, administrators. Uh, we're on a university campus, so some doctors came over. There were elected officials and judges, and we've been mentoring some, uh, we called them street pharmaceutical reps. And so because those uh, pharmaceutical reps were there, there were uh, some police in the room. And uh, we greeted people the way that you just shared, uh, Carrie. You said, you know, we greeted them in the parking lot before they got to the door. It's good to see you. Welcome to Fearless Dialogues. Are you ready for change? And they got that invitation three times before they went into the main room for conversation. And what we seek to do um, is to create unique spaces for unlikely partners, people who normally don't sit down and talk, engage in hard, heartfelt conversations about taboo subjects. And it's built upon these three pillars, see, hear, and change. It's good to see you. Welcome to Fearless Dialogue. Are you ready for change? And our philosophy, Carrie, is that if you cannot see um, a person as someone with a gift, a human being with a gift, it's not possible to hear their story as valuable. And if you can't see that person nor hear their story as contributing to the larger whole, any change that is created will not be sustainable. And so um, we've recognized in uh, working with now thousands of people that there are five fears that stifle hard conversations, at, at least five fears. And so what we seek to do is to uh, to teach people about these these fears in very interactive ways. We create a space that we call a laboratory of discovery. And so just as Carrie shared, there's small group conversation, there's music playing. There are these experiments that engage the entire body such that people will move into uh, very deep and authentic spaces of conversation in interactive ways that they don't recognize that, wow, did I just share that? And so um, the, the, the first of the five fears that we've recognized that we have to circumnavigate is the fear of the unknown. And, um, you know, many of the places that we're invited to now, you know, um, the, the boss will say, okay, we're having this fearless dialogue, you have to come. Or a parent will say, 
you know, I read this book that this guy wrote and he has a, a wonderful team. I looked at the website. Um, and so you're going. And so some people are pressured into going into fearless dialogue spaces and, you know, excuse my French, but the name scares the shit out of people, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> with, with race and class and gender and all this stuff. I don't, I'm not sure I want to have a fearless dialogue with people I don't know. And so one of the things that we do to start our conversation is to break down our name and uh, to help kind of lower the anxiety a little. Um, and we look at fearless as um, a compound word and not a root word and a suffix. So if uh, fear is the root and suffix is less, um, it means uh, without fear. And it is virtually impossible to have a conversation, even with people that you love about a taboo subject, without some element of fear. However, we prefer to look at fearless as a compound word. Um, and it is possible if naming those fears and being aware of what's happening around you and in your body, that we might move forward with less fear. So as we move into unknown spaces, we invite people to move into these spaces with less fear. And part of the way that we do that is to shift an environment that seems uh, unknown into something that is seemingly familiar. And so uh, when people enter into the room, you all may recall that there were images all over the room. Uh, there were some seated on, t on, on your tables, but in most spaces, we kind of plaster them on the walls with tape. And so there may be two or 300 very provocative images around the room that will kind of conjure an, an image or a memory of a family member or a friend or even someone that you saw in Starbucks that morning. Um, we also play very different genres of music. And uh, we build this off of the theories of um, a psychologist and object relations theorist by the name of Donald W. Winnicott, who believes that there are transitional objects. Um, and a transitional object is basically, um, you know, when uh, children are very young, they're infants, and their parents are good enough, according to Winnicott, this infant will believe that they are omnipotent. Like they literally rule the world. If I cry, somebody will change me. If I am hungry and I cry again, somebody will feed me until 3 a.m. And uh, that mother or father or caretaker says, let her sleep. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and so the child, after having those reassuring moments of knowing that at some point this loving caretaker will come, will find a blankie or a teddy bear. And they will cling to that as a place of security and comfort in order to kind of uh, help them calm down in that moment of anxiety. What Winnicott says is that's a transitional object. And as we get older, we hold on to other transitional objects. So there might be a song that you heard in uh, high school, Carrie, that really influenced you to become a professional musician. And, but you hadn't heard that song in 25 years. 
And then that song plays over the airways in your car and you remember exactly where you were the first time you heard that song. And um, that's a transitional object. It takes you from your car back to that memory of comfort. Um, and so images, uh, some poems and, 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 and scriptures, uh, other times music, food can serve as a transitional object. So we try and infuse the spaces that we create with a, diff, a, a vast array of transitional objects to help people navigate the unknown. I just want to say that part of what helped me overcome my fear in the opening movements of that fearless dialogue session that we attended was your leadership, your fearless leadership in walking around that room and beginning that, that whole session in a very countercultural way. You know, welcome. It is good to finally see you. And everybody's saying, wait a minute, this, here, we came here to hear this, this Candler School of Theology, Emory University professor, who's an expert in things we really care about, give a lecture. And you're walking around greeting every, each and every individual among five or 600 people. It was a fearless way to begin. And I really felt that you, um, you know, in you, the word became flesh. And that that fearless dialogues requires that kind of embodiment of of being of moving with less fear into uh, these challenging situations. I just needed to name that and to uh, a deep bow toward you for modeling it. It's a perfect segue, Parker, because. Uh, we talk about the fear of strangers and, you know, in your work, the company of strangers, you talk about public strangers and, uh, you know, Stanley Milgram talks about familiar strangers and intimate strangers. Uh, Robert Dykstra talks about, and then there are even strangers within. And one way that we seek to help people deal with those many strangers that they encounter on a daily basis is what we call radical hospitality. And so part of that hospitality is meeting people in the parking lot and saying, it's good to finally see you. But it's also, as you described, Parker, in once we enter into the space, taking a few moments. And it, it was a lot longer in Minneapolis because it was 600 people in the room. Mm -hmm. But we, we look every single person in the eye. And I say we because, you know, <clears throat> as an organization, we work in pairs. We co-facilitate or what we call animate, we co-animate uh, by bringing these conversations to life. And it's, it's very, uh, as you said, countercultural because people start squirming. I mean, you didn't squirm because you're Quaker, Parker, and you used to <laughs> silence. But most people, most people are really anxious. Yeah, I'm, I'm used to you, man. <laughs> oh, you, <laughs> but, but, you know, many people are really, really deeply uncomfortable in silence. And so in that moment, Carrie, you'll recall five or six minutes went by and I didn't speak on the microphone at all. I went around and I looked yeah. every single person in the eye. And, and then I say, it's good to finally see you. And we say this for a couple of reasons. The first is, you know, uh, when we're invited, we start strategizing, you know, what can we do to make this a a meaningful experience for all involved. But we don't just strategize. We 
began envisioning what will it be like when these four or 500 leaders get into a room together and begin talking. But, you know, uh, we're also people of faith. So, you know, we begin praying immediately upon invitation for the people in the room. So sometimes, you know, that means we're praying for six, seven, eight months out. And so it's good to finally see the people in the room when we get there. And um, one one other anecdote, I got a ton of stories, Parker. You know, my granddaddy was a, a storyteller, but um, we were at Yale Divinity School and um, we were hosting a Fearless Dialogue session and there was a prison choir that was invited. And the choir members, you know, don't get much say on where they go, but I'm sure they're grateful to be out of the prison. So they go. Um, and so I was greeting everybody as they came in. And there was this one gentleman, he walked up to me and I shook his hand. I said, it's good to see you, my brother. My name is Greg. What's your name? He shared his name. And I said, welcome to Fearless Dialogues. Are you ready for change? And then he turned his head to the side like, what is going on? And then he just walked away. And then about 20 minutes later, he walked back up to me and he said, I, I wasn't really excited about coming here today. I was just glad to be out. But when you looked me in the eye and you asked me my name and you said, welcome, said, you're the first person that's done that in over three months. Wow. And, you know, I really don't care what you say <laughs> when you go in, you know, whatever else that happens. It's gravy. I've gotten what I needed. Such a powerful story. I just want to mention how it seems like such a simple idea, but sometimes the most effective and powerful ideas at their heart are pretty clear, you know, that I see you and I I value enough to, to uh, interact in this kind of way. I, I, I live in Indiana and there's this thing Grocery lines. <laughs> I'm just telling you that that the folks who work uh, checking out at grocery lines so often, you know, they they have been working hard and and no one has seen them. I, re- I remember once it was right before Thanksgiving and they were going through, going through, going through, and um, this woman was was tired. I could tell she'd been working hard, and I said, you know, how many family dinners? have passed through your hands today, you know? Hmm. Thank you. And she kind of looked at me like, "Yeah, okay, I got a crazy one here, you know? But, <laughs> but then, but then, but then she really softened and she started telling me a story about what she was going to do for Thanksgiving. And it was, there was this moment and it's, it's such a simple idea yeah. to, to be there and to be present and and to notice, you know, take out the earbuds, you know, uh, hang up the telephone. Yeah, yeah, and but so I, I want to go back to what you're saying, but it's such a powerful, such a powerful idea, and it's so accessible. Yeah, you know, frankly, you know, this work. Uh, yeah, I grew up in the home of activists, and uh, as a seminary professor, I struggled with. You know, am I living into the fullness of who God created me to be? And, you know, I, I consider my, myself an activist, but I'm rarely on the picket line. 
Um, and what does that look like? What does it feel like? What does it mean? You know, I've come to believe that helping people to see those who are in close proximity to them is uh, ground shifting work, encountering the stranger, but welcoming them as neighbor is a gift. And I, I, it's very, it's very, um, it, it follow. It, it's part of the thread that kind of comes from Howard Thurman, mm-hmm. that that at least what I've encountered in terms of the writings of Howard Thurman, this yeah. idea of getting underneath, mm-hmm. getting underneath the systems, to the personal, to the deep, bringing in, bringing in the spirit, uh, and, and bringing the spirit very courageously into the world. It seems that there's a connection there. And, and I know you're working on a book that's very based on the work of Howard Thurman. Yeah, uh, Thurman has been central to my growth and development. Um, Parker is uh, very humble and uh, he uses humor to kind of deflect some of the oddities of um, being a mystic. But my friend um, introduced me to Parker because he sensed that I was in this critical moment in life. And, you know, Parker, Parker, I call him cousin, but he's also on my council of Yodas. <laughs> and, Love that. Um, and so um, this woman on my pen, I wear these ancestor buttons. Her name is Mari Evans. Uh, she she's also on that council and um and so too is thurman and you know i i have been a very um unique kid my wife i married my wife largely because she said i wasn't strange but i was unique (laughs) (laughs) so i've been a very unique um person my entire life and uh through much of my adolescence in mid-20s, I felt I was an alien um, because I thought differently, uh, I moved differently in the world, I wrote differently. And um, somewhere in seminary, I was given the instruction to read biographies of people who were also alien-like. Um, and uh, I found company in the uh, in in the relationship with these misfits on the page and uh thurman was one of those misfits and when i say misfit i'm not talking about an outlaw but someone who just does not fit properly in you know in in the world um as the world has conceived of it and so um you know at at this very critical juncture in my life discerning vocation I prayed to God. I said, I feel like Luke Skywalker. I got these gifts that I can either use for good or for ill. <laughs> and uh, God, please send me some Yodas. So um, among Parker and, and Miss Mari, a few others came, one of whom was a Thurman scholar by the name of Luther Smith, uh, who is a dear friend and, uh, and, and fellow sojourner. And so Thurman has become a conversation partner from his ancestral realm. And so, you know, one of the beauties of being able to feel a fellowship with people who are are oddities is that I can read a text and say, hey, 
this sentence, there's something happening between this word and this word. What happened right there at that point that was strategically left out? Because that's what I'm feeling now. And so I have these conversations with with the Yodas and with Thurman um, in my writing and my devotion. And so, yeah, Thurman, Thurman lives with me um, in, in ways as not a, a scholar might, you know, live with a theorist as a devotee. Um, Thurman is kind of a spiritual guide and teacher for me. Greg, it's, um, I knew going into this that um, we should really schedule two, three, four podcasts with you because there's so much to learn from the work you're doing. So many questions we want to ask you. At some point, we'd love to get back to the other uh, five responses or uh, to, to fear. They're um, in the book, Parker. I know they are. <laughs> I know they are. We, we don't have to talk about it anymore. Oh, see, I was, I, was, I was setting you up for a sales pitch, so that's what friends do for friends. Um, <laughs> there, there's so much that I want to talk about, but I, I want to... I'm thinking very much about the book that Carrie raised a few minutes ago and that you just commented on with this very winsome title, Anchored in the Current, The Timeless Wisdom of Howard Thurman. And I can just, you know, I can just picture you um, dropping your anchor in in Thurman's heart and mind and spirit and life as, as this as this really um, whitewater current of our society right now uh, swirls around so so dangerously and capsizes so many boats. I, for one, <clears throat> am very grateful for your sort of reintroducing Thurman into my life, and I'm excited for the book to come out because you've invited maybe 15 people to write essays about the impact of Thurman on their lives, people who are doing really important, engaging things in the world especially around the issues that Fearless Dialogue is, is addressing, but from, from many different angles, social justice issues, personal spiritual development in a way that takes us back out into the world rather than retreating from the world. But if I could invite you, uh, Carrie and I both are very interested in, in this question. Um, really like to invite you, borrowing a phrase from Thurman, to reflect as we begin to close out here on Greg Ellison's growing edges. Um, we, as you know, stole the title of our project, our website, uh, from his wonderful quote about, in times of death and destruction, look always to the growing edge. And um, I have always felt, as you know, that, uh, that when you understand the life of a man like Thurman, who was born just before the turn of the century uh, in the Deep South in Florida, whose own grandmother, who, whom he knew personally, was an enslaved human being, had been an enslaved human being, a man who went through uh, rough, rough times of the sort that someone like I can barely imagine, that that when he says a hopeful word about look well to the growing edge in times of death and destruction, that's a trustworthy word. That's not just words. 
that's words become flesh. That's life embodied. And I feel that way very much about this whole notion of the growing edge. So as you think about the growing edges in your in your life at what, age 40 or thereabouts with two beautiful kids and a big international project and a professorship at Emory and books behind you and ahead of you. Um, what's Greg Ellison's growing edge in that rich and complex mix? What a gift. You know, I, I, I will late in that question with another from Thurman. Um, Parker uh, and Carrie, as you know, my, my father died, uh, my namesake, on March 5th of 2018. And it forever shifted how I exist in this world. Um, he was my hero. And um, I volunteered to preach his eulogy. As you'll recall, Parker, it um, was one of the most challenging times of my life to stand over his casket before 3,000 people. And I closed with a question from Thurman that I think about daily. And uh, Thurman asked this question, what must I do to die a good death? A good death requires deep and constant reflection on one's growing edges. Um, at this point in my life, um, growth requires me to learn how to um, enter into spaces of conflict and to learn how to uh, trust uh, God and the spirit to shift the energies of the space without internalizing the conflict because I find myself entering into a number of very um, intense environments. The growing edge requires me to um, develop some sort of balance, uh, if that is possible, um, between a life as a professor uh, a founder of a growing organization and a parent and husband. The growing edge requires me to rest uh, and to revitalize my body and to be at comfort when I don't please even the people who love me most. And, and I think the final growing edge is to learn more and to, um, and to live more with the presence of uh, the ancestors who uh, can vitalize and instruct and guide in these very difficult moments. Um, I think these growing edges are contingent upon living the good life um, that will uh, necessitate, uh, and I guess maybe not necessitate, but lead me to dying a good death. We've been in conversation today with Greg Ellison, 
Both Carrie and I are so grateful for this opportunity to hear more about Greg's inspiring life and important work with Fearless Dialogues. Fearless Dialogues explores what it means to move beyond our fears personally and as a community. So with our June question of the month, we'd love to invite you to explore this same question with us. We hope you'll visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, and click on the Conversations button to join the always thoughtful community that shares in responding to our monthly questions. So the June question of the month is, can you describe a time in your life when acknowledging and naming a fear helped you move past it? If you could lay down certain fears today, what might become possible in your life? Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out our next episode when we talk about our July question of the month. And don't forget to visit our spiffy new website, (laughs) newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation too. And now we've got a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into the conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Allison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, production. And she is brave, she is courageous, and yes, sometimes fearless. <laughs>